All right, all right, all sites, all venues, all right? Hands up if you have ever heard of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> hands up, okay, all right. Now, okay, this is the hard, much harder one. No, keep your hands up, keep, much harder one. Okay, keep your hands up if you think you can name all ten. Ooh, okay, most of the hands go down. All right, all right, okay. So uh, for those of you who just put your hands down, here are the Ten Commandments. Do not go public. <laughs> Do not be acquired. Software must work. All right. I apologize. I was being unclear. I was not talking about the Ten Commandments in the Bible. I was talking about the Ten Commandments for epic systems. Now, um, for those of you who are not in the Madison area, Epic System is a software firm on the west side of Madison. Uh, They specialize in software for healthcare uh, um, um, database. Now, if you ever visit the campus... It's really fun. It's really cool. Right? They have all these really cool buildings that are, that are particularly themed. And if you ever go into one of the restrooms in one of these buildings, you will run into these. The Epic's Ten Commandments and Epic Principles prominently featured, prominently displayed in the restrooms. Um, now, which means if you're actually an Epic employee, you will be exposed to these multiple times in a day. It's not just the restrooms. Now, uh, Christian Eggers, uh, she's currently our director of ministry to 20s and 30s young adults. She used to work HR at Epic, and she tells me that it's not just the restrooms or break rooms and other places. It's, they actually have a monthly gathering for staff where you go in and somebody do a talk on one of these commands and principles. Yeah. These commands and principles, they come up in meetings, they come up in conversation, because the goal is to instill these principles and, 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 and commands into the minds of the Epic employees so that it affects how they think and how they make decisions. Now, I am not recruiting for Epic. But I do want to talk about them today because they use commands and principles to create a culture to accomplish their mission, okay? They have a mission. They want to make creative cutting-edge software for best healthcare outcomes, okay? And to do that, they need to shape a culture. They need to inculcate their values and their way of doing things into their employees. In other words, it's about shaping the culture to accomplish the mission. Now, today, we're actually gonna talk about the Ten Commandments in the Bible. And here is the big takeaway for this talk. The Ten Commandments is about shaping the culture of God's people in order to accomplish the mission. But before I keep going on this, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy 2023. Uh, Greetings to those of you who are here and those of you joining us. um, uh, Gospel Fusion, Tradition, Fitchburg, Downtown, uh, watching online as well as those listening via podcast. Uh, to the Chinese speakers, to the Spanish speakers, Now, this is the first in-person gathering of 2023, but we're now starting a new series. We're continuing the series from last year, Live This Book. And the big idea of the series is that we're reading the Bible as a story, a one continuous story. And we made a video that, that covers, that summarizes the entire storyline. And uh, so if you're kind of new around here, this video will catch you up, and for the rest of us, well, it's been three weeks, so time for a refresher. Roll clip. The story begins with a God who has a plan. He crafts a beautiful world for himself to be his domain. 
and he populates the world with beings called humans, creatures who resemble him. And God invites these humans into partnership with him by giving them the authority to run the world for him. But alas, these humans don't want to run the world for God. They want to run the world for themselves. So they rebel against God. And the result is that the entire world falls into darkness, corruption, and death. But this is a determined God. He doesn't give up. He calls into existence a new people called ancient Israel. They are to be God's people. And God invites his people to partner with him on the mission, to live out God's character in order to attract the rebellious world back to him. But alas, God's people don't want this mission. They want to be like every other people. So they rebel against God and God destroys ancient Israel and sends his people into exile. Again, this is a determined God. This time he sends his own son named Jesus into the created world, not just to be a human, but to be the king. Jesus recruits a people, those who are tired of this broken world, those who are yearning for a new way of being human. And Jesus dies to reconcile this new people to God and to each other. With his death on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus creates the new people of God called the church. This new people, drawn from every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, are united in Jesus and are empowered by God's Spirit to accomplish the mission, to live out God's character in order to attract the rebellious world back to Him. The story ends with this promise. A day is coming when Jesus will return and He will restore God's kingdom on earth. A kingdom populated by God's people, those who pledge their allegiance to Jesus as their king. And this broken world will be restored, filled with light and life without end. So these are the seven movements of this story. God's plan for humanity, the humans rebel. God chooses a people, God's people rebel. Jesus the king, the empowered church, God's mission accomplished. I'm hoping that by the end of the series, you would have these seven completely memorized in your head. Now, we are currently in the third movement, God chooses a people. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be a people who have God's law. And yes, I know I just said a bad word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're like new around here, you're like, hey, first, you haven't been back in a while. We're first time at Blackhawk. Hey, let's bring up Blackhawk. Well, welcome to Blackhawk Church. Today, we're going to talk about the law. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church today? Huh? Uh, we, we, there, there are problems with law for us. I mean, it's a problematic word, right? I think, I think you know, on many levels, on the ground level, we're Americans. We like freedom. We cherish freedom. And I, we don't like people telling us what to do. Now, we understand that laws are necessary, otherwise you have complete chaos, but generally speaking, we're not that happy with laws in general, okay? Now, specifically, Old Testament laws. Now, you've heard some of these, right? And, and from our cultural perspective, they're kind of weird, they're kind of outdated, they're kind of hateful in some ways, right? 
And for Christ followers, we're like, do we follow these laws? It seems like we ignore most of them, and yet we kind of follow some of them. Why is that? And then for others, you have heard teaching that says the Old Testament is about following the Old Testament laws in order to earn your way to salvation. If you don't follow well, you go to hell. And then New Testament comes along, Jesus comes and brings grace. So we don't need to look at the Old Testament laws anymore. Why are we doing this? We have all kinds of questions about the laws in the Old Testament. So, a few things. First, this is a 35-minute sermon. (laughs) I am not going to answer all your questions. However, we do have a podcast. We have a Black Hawk Church Next Step podcast. Go ahead and subscribe and send your questions about the law to podcast at blackhawkchurch.org. And we'll try to answer as many of them as we possibly can. All right? So send your questions there. Second, I don't have the time to talk about all the laws in the Old Testament. Um, What I want to do is then I want to focus just on the Ten Commandments. Those are the laws right at the very beginning of the section on the laws, and they are considered to be the foundation and the summary of the law. And finally, and most importantly, I want to show you how to read the laws as part of the story. Now, I hope you noticed that by now, right? When we read things as a story, when we read the Bible as a story, it has a way of shifting the big ideas we have in our heads, right? Like prayer looked different when, when we read it as a story. Salvation looks different when we read it as part of a story. Well, the laws look different when you read it as part of a story. All right, so let's get to the story. Three weeks ago, we were in Egypt, right? God's people, they left the promised land, they ended up in Egypt, and then for hundreds of years, they faced oppression in Egypt. This is, you know, they were, they were dealing with all kinds of problems there, and then God shows up, and he sends them Moses, and he gets them out of Egypt. This is the defining story of salvation in the Bible. Salvation is about delivering God's people out of oppression into freedom. But that's not how the story ends, is it? Right? What's the plan? The plan is that for this people now to learn what it means to live as God's people and organize themselves into a kingdom here so they can show the world who God is in order to accomplish the mission of drawing the world back to God, right? So that's the story. So today, we're going to be here, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19. This is the chapter, this is the passage that introduces us to the law and tells us how the laws fit into the story. Chapter 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and Yahweh, when you see the word Lord in all caps in your English Bible, got personal name Yahweh, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. All right. So first thing, right, God talks about salvation, right? There is a judgment against Egypt, and then God, with his mighty power, delivers his people out of oppression and brings them to himself. This is about salvation. So here's the question. Why does God save the ancient Israelites? 
Because they're good? Because they follow the law? They don't have the law. No, no. Why does God save the ancient Israelites? Because they are the descendants of Jacob. That's right. God saved the ancient Israelites because of promises he made to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not anything the people have done, okay? No, he saves them because he, has, he made a promise. He has a relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, do you guys remember back in the story from last year, right? Why does God call Abraham? What was the whole point of this? God calls Abraham because he wants a partner to fix this world. The world has been damaged, has been, has been corrupted by human rebellion. And God says, oh, no, 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 I am going to fix this world. So he calls Abraham, he says, from you, I'm going to build a kingdom that will transform this world. So it's, 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 it's not anything done. It's about God. It's about God's character. It's about his commitment to make things right. In other words, Salvation in the Old Testament is grace that flows from the character of God, his commitment to make things right, which in the Old Testament is called God's righteousness. Salvation is based on grace that comes from God's righteousness. All right, so first of two tangents for the day. First, this is pretty critical, just critical, because I think many of us here have heard the idea that, that, that the Old Testament is about you know, following the law, working your way to salvation, right? Some of you have heard that, right? So let me just say as clearly as I possibly can, that is wrong. And if you have questions about this, talk to me afterwards. But I want to give this idea clear at Blackhawk Church once and for all. Salvation in the Old Testament is based on grace. It's based on grace. It flows from God's commitment, his intense desire to bring his wayward children back into a right relationship with him. It's about God's rightness, his commitment to make things right. So in the Old Testament, salvation comes before the law. It's about grace. It's always been about grace. Okay, so coming back to the end of the tangent here. Okay. Now that God's people are saved from oppression, what are they saved into? So God says, okay, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Two things going on here, okay? Number one, God's inviting the people into a special relationship. The Hebrew word here for treasure possession is segulah. It has two meanings. One is it refers to a king's private treasury. Right, in a kingdom, ancient kingdom, right, the, in theory, the king owns everything. But in reality, right, the king kind of has this private treasury, private stash that he can do as he pleases. That's the first meaning of segula. The second meaning of segula is it refers to something that is precious to the owner. Kind of like, you know, Gollum in Lord of the Rings. My precious. Okay, I just compared God to Gollum. I shouldn't do that. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but God says to ancient Israel, I'm inviting you to be my segula, my private property, my precious. Okay. And, and, and as the people, if they become God's segula, that will allow them to fulfill their function, which is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Now, now what does that mean? Well, what does holy nation mean? A holy nation means a, a, a nation that is distinct from all other nations. It has a particular purpose, a particular mission. That's what holy means, by the way. It means set apart for a different purpose. So what is that purpose? To be priests. Okay, priest is a kind of a religious word. All kinds of connotations, ideas of what it means. So let me, just, let me just give you the gist of what priest refers to in the Old Testament. A priest in the Old Testament is someone who stands between God and people. Okay? And they say to the people, hey, I'm going to teach you about God. I want to encourage you to get closer to God. And they say to God, God, forgive the people. I want to establish reconciliation and forgiveness between God and people. Now, God's inviting them to be a kingdom of priests. That doesn't mean he wants a priest in your midst. No, no, no. He wants a kingdom of priests. He wants a people, a community, an entire kingdom, a nation that functions as priests. That is, the entire ancient Israelite nation is supposed to be focused on teaching other people in the world, other kingdoms, other nations, who God is and encouraging them to move closer to God. And they're also standing in front of God, pleading for forgiveness and establishing reconciliation. That's what God wants. That's a kingdom of priests. And that's about wooing the rebellious world back to God. It's the mission, folks. This is the mission. Here's the obvious question. How do you become a kingdom of priests in the holy nation? How does that even work? Right? I mean, okay, it's fine to have a mission. It's fine to have something you're aiming at. How do you get there? I mean, look, especially we're talking about a large group of people, right? We're talking about a large group of people doing this together. What you need is you need to establish a culture that will allow you to accomplish the mission. Those of you involved in the business world, um, you've heard of Peter Drucker management consultant. This, he said this once. He said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Okay? And, and what he means is this. I think some of you, you have experienced this. You've been part of a co company or a team or a nonprofit, and, and they have mission. They have a strategy. But the whole thing falls apart because they don't have culture. Okay? You hear about good football coaches. Right? They always talk about before you do X's and O's, you create a culture of winning. You look at a company like, like, like Epic, right? they inculcate a culture with their employees, inculcate their values and way of doing things in order to accomplish their mission. You can't do anything without this. I mean, this is true of every important human undertaking. You want to do something big, you want to do something important, and especially if it takes more than a few people, you need to create a culture in order to accomplish the mission. Otherwise, you're just dreaming. God doesn't just dream. God's going to make it happen. God's mission is this. Establish his reign over this earth. Fix this broken world. What is his strategy? Create a people who can live out his character. So to draw and woo the rebellious world back to him. That's the strategy. What's missing? He needs to create a culture.
He needs to be able to help shape the culture of the people of God so that they're able to execute the strategy. How does he do that? He gives them the law. Verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, what is God talking about? He's talking about what's coming up next. Chapter 20 of Exodus, Ten Commandments. He's talking about all the laws that are coming up. And God says to Israel, hey, if you actually embrace the laws, if you embrace the principles, the cultures that I want you to, to have, what's going to happen is that is going to transform you. You're going to have a deep relationship with me, and you're going to be transformed so that you can actually live out my character to accomplish the mission. Huh? That's what's going on here. You need to be transformed. And if every single person in your society embraces these laws as part of who they are and live it out in their society, this society is going to shine like a beacon in a dark and broken world, and people are going to be drawn to it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses says to the people, observe them. He's talking about the laws. Observe them carefully. Why? For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, wow, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their God near them the way Yahweh our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? The laws are about the mission, right? You're supposed to live in a way when people look at this kingdom, they go, Oh my goodness. I mean, this, this is God's wisdom and God's understanding. Not only that, you were a people who have this incredible relationship with God. That's awesome. I want to live in a place that is just and fair. I want to live in a place where people are close to God. This is what I want. The Ten Commandments are about the mission. The laws are about the mission. All right. This is where I go into the second tangent. Okay. There is a common idea out there that says um, the Ten Commandments um, are God's generic moral laws for everyone. Okay? And we should adopt it as a country. So I'm just going to point out that's wrong. How do I know that? We just read it in Exodus chapter 19. Right? God gives the Ten Commandments to shape the culture of God's people in order to accomplish the mission. Now, now I understand that we live in a democracy. And, and, and as Christ followers, we have the, the, we, have the, we have the ability to influence the laws in our, in our country. Yes. But it is a complicated discussion. Right? And, and theologians write about the intersection between biblical values and, and, and our secular world. And, and we have a, a few of those books in our sermon resource page. I would, I would recommend them to you. But, but wherever you end up on, on the discussion, what, the one thing we cannot do is just grab the Ten Commandments and, and use them for American laws. It doesn't work that way for the very simple reason. It was not intended for that. The Ten Commandments are intended for God's people to shape their culture in order to accomplish the mission. That was the last tangent, I promise. Let's get back to the Ten Commandments. Let's, let's see how they shape the values of the people of God. Okay, the basis for the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. 
You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. How does this shape the culture of God's people? Well, let's see. Let's start with the basis. Who is talking here? Yahweh, right? God. And he says, what does he say about himself? Who, am, who is God? I'm the one who saved you. That is the basis of the law. Do you understand? I saved you. I got you out of Egypt. I had grace upon you. I had power and mercy. That is the foundation. Response to that salvation, gratitude, is the foundation of the law. Right? First command. You shall know the gods before me. What does that mean? In the ancient world, people worship forces of nature. They, they worship something like the storm god. Why is that? Well, a storm god is pretty important because without rain for like a few weeks, your, your crops are dead. Your village is wiped out, right? So you got to have access to the storm god. In other words, religion in the ancient world is not about spirituality. God are the sources of life, security, and significance. Now today, we don't believe in storm gods but we have all kinds of things in our lives that function the same way. They provide us with life, security, and significance. The gods of this world. Now, now I'm not saying any more about this because we're gonna have a sermon coming up that's all about idols that we have. So we'll save it for that. But here's the point, okay? Yahweh says, I want to be your God. I want to be your God. I want to be your source of life, security, and significance. I want to play that central role in your life. What that means is our God is not content to be the God you go to when you need help. And then when, you, when everything is okay, we leave him alone. God, our God doesn't want that. Our God says, no, no, no. I want to bind you ever closer with me in a deeper relationship because our God is relationally intense. Now, if God were a human being, that would be a little creepy. But he's God, and he created us for this. We are created for a deep, intimate relationship with God. It's what we're made for. We don't feel complete without it. And we need this. We need this relationship in order to live out his character, in order to accomplish the mission, which, in other words, the first command is the foundation of the Ten Commandments. And in fact, indeed, it is the foundation of all the laws in the Old Testament. Commands two and three. These two commands are about protecting God's reputation. So don't make an object or an image to represent God. Why is that? Because God's not an object. When we make an object or an image to represent God, we start thinking that God is something we can control or manipulate. Number two, command three. Don't misuse the name of Yahweh, your God. Underlying principle is very simple. Don't connect God to something that doesn't belong to him. Now, I know people use this command to say, oh, you shouldn't use God's name when you swear or curse. Okay, that's so barely scratching the surface. Here is the major problem, okay? People use God's name 
for their own purposes. Nations use God to justify wars. Companies use God to sell products. Politicians use God to gain power. Christ followers use God to justify whatever it is we want to do. And as a people who are protective of God's reputation, we are very, very, very careful about invoking God's name. So why? Why should we be protective of God's reputation? Do you remember the mission? Right? Drawing the rebellious world back to God, right? Wooing them back. Well, Damaging God's reputation, do you think that's going to make the mission easier or harder? Right? I mean, look, how do people know about God? They look at God's people. They look at us. They look at the church. Which means that we need to be people who are fiercely protective of God's reputation. That means we don't turn them into an object and we don't connect them to things that have nothing to do with him. Commands 4 through 10 are about the other major values of the kingdom of God, which is the value of human beings. Number four, Sabbath. What does not working one day of the week have to do with the value of humanity? Well, in the ancient world and as today, how do we measure people? We measure people by what they do, by what they produce, by how much they work. What you do for a living establishes your status and your position in our society. Not so in the kingdom of God. We say no to that. The, 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 the culture, the broken world around us wants to define humans based on what we do and what we produce. And in the kingdom of God, we say, no, 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 no. Human beings reflect the image of God. That's where our value comes from. We are God-like. And so how do we resist that? How do we proclaim our opposition to that? We stop work once every seven days. By living a rhythm of rest and work, we proclaim our defiance, our challenge to this world's values. We are not defined by what we do. We are made in the image of God. The rest of these are about valuing people, taking care of them, right? We value our parents. We, we value the lives of other people. We value the marriage of other people. We value the property of other people. We value the reputation of other people. Valuing other people. Now, the Ten Commandments have frequently been connected to the idea of human rights. All right, this sounds kind of familiar. And, 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 and you probably all have seen this quote before out of the Declaration of Independence. We, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, it is absolutely true that Christianity contributed to the idea of human rights and its development in, over the past couple few hundred years. But I want to make something very clear, okay? Human rights are very different from the Ten Commandments. They're not the same. Here is the major difference. Okay. Human rights are about me, my prerogatives, what I'm entitled to. The Ten Commandments are about my obligations to other people. Look at the Sixth Command. It does not say I have a right to life. It says, you shall not murder. 
eighth command. It does not say you have a right to property. It says you shall not steal. Do you see it? Do you see that the Ten Commandments within it contains this radical restructuring, reorientation of human culture? Like, we come out of a world that says, it's about me. It's about my, me and my family, my clan. It's about protecting myself. And you enter the kingdom, and, and the Ten Commandments says, no, 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 the culture's reversed. It's reoriented. No, it's all about the others. It's about protecting other people, make others the focus of your efforts. This is a radical reorientation. You want to see how radical it is? Look at the 10th command. You should not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, I just want to say as a point of spiritual pride, I have never, ever, ever coveted anybody's donkey before. <laughs> I've never done it. And I feel really good about that. But here's the point. The 10th command is about what's going on inside your head. Right? It's, it's going on in here. The 10th command says, hey, you know what goes on inside your head comes out in what you do. And if I'm jealous of somebody, if I'm envious of somebody, their physique, their, 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 their status, their reputation, their property, and if I indulge myself in this envy or in this coveting, if I'm thinking about it, spending time thinking about it, that's going to affect how I treat that person and what I say and don't say, and what I do and don't do. And so the 10th command says that the kingdom of God, the culture of the kingdom of God is so radically reoriented that the people in this kingdom voluntarily limit their own thought processes. Do you understand that? We voluntarily refuse to think certain things for the sake of other people. This command cannot be enforced. Not back then, not today. Nobody knows what you're thinking. But no, reoriented. We control this for the sake of others. A radical reorientation. Because that's the value of the kingdom of God. The laws changes the values of God's people. It says we have God first in our life, primary. We need to become a people who are fiercely protective of God's reputation. And then finally, we become a people oriented to protecting others. All right, let's pull it together. The laws are God's tool for shaping the culture of God's people to accomplish the mission. This is what I want you to take away. If you got this today, I'm good. But I want to give you a little bit more. Okay? Because there's a key insight that derives from this. That's going to help us understand the rest of the story. Here's the key insight. Your attitude toward the laws depends on your attitude toward the mission. Right? If I don't care about good software for healthcare, I am not going to care too much about the Ten Commandments and principles that, that, that Epic is doing. I'm on a sports team, and I don't really care about winning that much. I am not going to buy into this exercise regimen this new coach just, just imposed. And if I don't care about God's mission to change the world, the laws sound like a drag. And that's what's going to happen in this story. In a couple of weeks, we're going to move into the, the new movement. It's going to be called God's People Rebel. Why? Because they don't know God and they don't care about the mission. 
Now we jump forward in the story to the end where God, as Jesus, enters into the story. And by his death and resurrection, he calls a people together united in him. And because we're united in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers us so that we can actually know God. The Holy Spirit helps us to begin to care about the mission. And as we become all in with God, as we become people who care passionately about God's mission for the world, our attitudes toward the law changes. They shift. They become a blessing because they show us how to live out our calling. Now, I know many of the laws in the Old Testament were designed for an ancient agriculture society in the ancient Near East. Okay? We're not there today. But it's the same concepts, same ideals, same values. It's the same Ten Commandments. Our God wants a church that is culture that is marked, shaped by the Tenth Command, by the Ten Commandments. Imagine a church. Imagine a church. Imagine the people who put God first in their lives. Imagine the people fiercely protective of God's reputation. Imagine people who live rhythm, well-meaningful lives, who have cohesive families, who, who live protective of other people, going so far as limiting their own thoughts for the sake of others. Imagine a church like that. That would be a place of peace, of wholeness, of healing, of shalom. And that church, that community, that people would shine like a city on a hill in this dark and broken world. And people would come. They would flock to it. It's about culture for the sake of the mission. Let me pray for us. Father, we have all kinds of difficulties with your law. We have all kinds of questions. We have all kinds of resistances. It, it doesn't quite suit us. It's going to fit us. And we don't quite understand how to do, what to do with it. So Father, I, I pray that you help us because what we, what we do need, we, have, we know the mission. We know, the, we know the strategy, but what we need is a way forward to know how to live out, to, to live out who we're meant to be. And so Father, we pray your Holy Spirit gives us the power to know you well and to care about your mission and that our attitude towards your laws would change. That we, we would see it as a blessing. We would see it as a way to help us be the people you want us to be. So we want that. <sighs>